Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year and a half, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women tackle their period problems and hormonal imbalances using a natural whole foods approach. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Gail Federici, to our show today. Gail is an icon and knows what it takes to build a widely successful hair care brand. As an industry veteran, she was the co-founder and CEO of the well-known brand, John Frieda, and has leveraged her experience to build her latest venture, ColorWow, a professional hair care line geared towards color-treated hair. Gail has always put absolute breakthrough at the top of her product creation list. And while the beauty industry is notorious for knockoffs, she has literally no interest in ever following a path paved by another creator. At John Frieda, Gail was truly the first to design products that were combating frizz, a word that wasn't even discussed at the time. They eventually sold the business for $450 million, long before beauty acquisitions were even a common thing. After a few years, bound by a non-compete, Gail eventually launched ColorWow. She also partnered up with celebrity hairstylist Chris Appleton, who has worked with clients like Jennifer Lopez, Kim Kardashian, Katy Perry, and Ariana Grande. In our wide-ranging interview together, we talk about her life before all this incredible success as an entrepreneur and how she never thought in a million years that she'd launch a business. As someone who was always jumping around different jobs and didn't know what she wanted to do with her life, Gail shares how having twins in her late 30s was the biggest perspective shift for her and what really drove a lot of her future success. For anyone lost or looking to find their path, this interview is for you. Gail is inspiring and graciously shares so many of her gems for building a meaningful and successful business. We hope you enjoy this one. Welcome to the show, Gail. It's a pleasure to be here. So excited. Well, there is so much that I want to unpack in your entrepreneurial journey. You are a legend. I am a big fan of everything you've built. So this is a definitely a special interview for me. But before we go into your story, I'd actually love to start with a higher level question. You know, you've mentioned that in school, you would have been voted the least likely to succeed, which is mind blowing because you are an incredibly successful entrepreneur. So I'm curious for women listening today who might feel like they're either in the same place or don't don't have it in them to quote unquote succeed. From your experience, what would be something that you would tell them? I mean, I think that don't put too much pressure on yourself, I think. And don't worry about what everybody else is doing. It will happen when it's the right time for you. And for me, I never knew what I wanted to do. I had absolutely no idea. I wasn't somebody that had a vision of like a Hillary Clinton around my age, who absolutely knew from day one through school, excelled, knew what she wanted to do. I was the opposite. I had absolutely no idea. And I would call myself a bit of a dilettante. I would take some painting classes. I take guitar lessons. I took drum lessons. I'm sure my parents were absolutely petrified for me <laughs> because I was a very, very late bloomer. But I think that I always knew that 
I wanted to travel for one thing, and I would love to be able to work in the US and in the UK. It was always in my mind. And I feel like you need to have some kind of a thought process. It doesn't have to be a specific goal, but some things that you want that you want in your life at some point. Because I think that what happens is lots of different opportunities do come to everyone, but you need to know something about how you want your future to look like in order to take advantage of them. So I think I always knew that, and I knew I wanted my job to have some kind of creativity in it. And I just started at one point, I went to, I was about 28 years old, and I went to France to study French. I had still no clue what I wanted to do. And I went to study French at the University of Paris, and my mother got sick. And so I wound up having to come home, and I started temping at different places. And that's kind of how I wound up in hair care. But wherever I worked, I think I did put in 110%. And the more you put into anything, the more you get out of it, whether it's drum lessons, piano lessons, whether it's work, the more you put in, the more you get out of anything. And I think that that was kind of my key to finally getting to where I am today was wherever I worked, I learned a lot from every single job because I put a lot into it. And you don't have to worry because you find your way at what you're good at. It naturally happens if you work for it. I really believe that. What I appreciate about your upbringing as well is, you know, you're the eldest daughter of, I believe, four kids, right? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm curious because there's so many people that I know who are the eldest. They felt like they had a lot of responsibility taking care of the younger siblings growing up. And it's interesting to see as as you kind of fell into your young adult life, you were very much a free spirit in terms of your life and exploration. So was that always in you, even as a child? Or do you think you wanted to just take a break and just explore life because of that? being the eldest in your family growing up? I mean, I read a lot. I think that has a lot to do with it. I always was a very avid reader. And, you know, back in the day when I was really young, I would be reading a lot of romance novels. I tend to to read more nonfiction now, but back in the day, and I would always feel like I'm one of those girls. Like I was so far from them, but these amazing girls that were, you know, traveling everywhere and living in these exotic places. And I always just wanted to see. And when I was a junior in college, I went my junior summer to study art history in France and Italy. And that kind of started it for me. I just loved it. I loved the travel. I loved seeing the different architecture, meeting the different people, the different cultures. And that I always knew I wanted to be part of my life going forward. Sure. And So going back to, you know, you're exploring, you're in Paris studying, and then you had to come back to the States because of your mom. I'm sorry to hear that she was sick at the time. But you've really talked heavily about, you know, the moment you got pregnant and you had your two daughters, you credit a lot of your success to that moment. So tell me more about how that shifted your perspective around success. Because like you mentioned, prior to that, you were living life, exploring, creative, yeah, dabbling in different things. So I'd love to hear just kind of what happened. Yeah, it was a big reality check. Like I said, I was a very late bloomer, I think. And I only had to worry about myself. When I got pregnant, I got pregnant with twins, which was the first shock because there are no twins in either family. You're kidding. Yeah, none. And I got pregnant very quickly. I I didn't even think about kids until I was 36. And then I still figured, oh, it's going to take a year or two. 
but I honestly got pregnant really quickly and I went for an amnio and they said, well, we really can't do it today because you're going to be having twins. And I said, oh my God, they're Siamese is what I yelled out because I thought this is so insane. This is not possible. There's something radically wrong. But I wound up having two identical girls, Wow! but one of them had was born with congenital heart disease. And that was a very sobering moment for me. And my mother had passed away, so I didn't really have a lot of help. And I was working at the time. And my whole life went from being very footloose and carefree. And I did work hard where I worked, but I always knew it's just me that I have to worry about. And I just really went from the person that people knew me at college, fun and wanting to travel. I always read a lot to this very, very serious, driven person thinking that my husband was very creative and in music. And I had this very sort of logical side of me too. And I thought it's going to be up to me more to make sure that my daughter gets the best care. So I became very, very, very driven to make sure that I could always take care of her. And and that's what really changed my whole personality. It's like wow. BC and AC, before children and after children for me, <laughs> <laughs> like night and day. The last 10 years, I've kind of returned a bit more to myself, but for a very, very long time, I was driven. They say fear can be your headwind and stop you or your tailwind. And for me, it was my tailwind fear. It was what shot me into a real committed, serious, okay, you got to get down to business here. There went my carefree fun days. Oh my goodness. It's crazy to see the transition. And you know, it's interesting because I hear that a lot in terms of a lot of women who've been on my podcast who are like you, very successful, established entrepreneurs. Many of them have started their businesses or really made that leap when they were pregnant, you know, or had very young kids. So I think that instinct that you're talking about just kind of kicks in. It's like, I'm a provider. So it's interesting to see how for you, it totally switched your perspective on everything, which is so interesting. And a lot of people in that situation, you know, taking yourself out of just, you know, not having having at that time a stable career, just even having kids, let alone twins is very, you know, could it's a blessing, but I'm sure it's very overwhelming at the time. So you seem to do a really great job in, you know, taking advantage of that fear and really allowing that fear, like you said, to be to really push you forward. Like, have you always had that skill set? Or how did you get really comfortable with such a tough moment in your life where fear for a lot of people could just really push them in a different direction? Yeah, you know, I've thought about that a lot. My mother was my father's side of the family is Italian. My mother was Irish German and she was very, very strong. And apparently I complained a lot as a kid. And so she put this sign in my room that I complained I had no shoes until I met a man who had no feet, which is kind of so, but it was always like, keep it in perspective, Gail. You are lucky. There are many people that have things way, way worse than you. So get a grip and just keep marching forward. And I think that was it. So I remember being in the hospital with Alex and very, very scared when she had her first surgery at seven months. And I I started to meet other families in there who had kids that were terminal. And I thought, you know what? This isn't great. And I wish both kids are healthy, but people have it much worse. And so I think I just kept that, keep that mindset as much as I can when things get tough. I think in reality, people have it so much worse. So 
having that perspective is so key in any situation, like you said. And, you know, so you are pregnant, you give birth to your two beautiful girls. And you've mentioned, you know, you were really looking about ways to create wealth for your family. So can you kind of talk about how your relationship with John Frieda came about? Because the last we left off is you moved back home and you were temping at different, I believe, hair care companies. So how did that beautiful relationship come about? Because so much turned at that stage in your life. Yes, it did. So I started working for a hair care company in the education department. And then it was a 10-year period. And then I got moved up to be in charge of the creative services and then PR and still education. It was, and then got into marketing there. And during that, about eight years in, the company that I was working for, Zotos, they were doing a very big uh, event for 500 hairdressers in Italy and they needed a guest artist. And I was over in London at the time filming some TV commercials and for the company. And they said, can you go and see John Frieda's show? He's doing this big event. So I did. I met him. I, his show was amazing. And I met him then. We hired him to be the guest artist at this show in Milan in, I think it was like 1988. And at that point in time, my girls were, well, they were two just th- they were just three. I was constantly thinking about, okay, how do I make money? <laughs> and so when I met him and I was talking to him during the five days that he was at the show, I started to think about him as the new Sassoon because mm. and Sassoon was like the great, you know, haircutting went down to cut and blow dry. Whereas John was doing so much styling more so than we had in the U S it was still more cut and blow dry here, a little bit of styling, but he was the master of styling. So I said, would you ever be interested in doing a styling book for the trade? I just started thinking, thinking, and here is like the, oh, here's my US-UK connection too, because I always wanted to travel. So, you know, it like sort of all comes together. And he said, yeah, I would be interested in doing it. So he was in the UK, I was here, and we would talk and I would start writing chapters of the book for him. And we wrote this book and did these videos together for the company. So I spent a lot of time getting to know him. And during that time, he had some products that he had in his salon and he needed help with them. And one thing led to another. I started, you know, just giving him some advice. I was going to leave the company I was at and start my own advertising company with my business partner, Anne, who's still my business partner. And I said, you know, I think he's so marketable. I think he's smart. We've always worked on products. We've always been up in the lab. We kind of know this. Maybe, we, and I did not want to do any more hair care at the time. And I said, maybe we should do this. I said, I think it's probably the right thing. So she agreed. And that's how it started. We moved to, I moved with my two girls. She moved into the house with us and a nanny. Our husband stayed in the US. Uh, we thought it would be for six months, but it turned out to be a year. Wow. And that's how it started. A leap, a leap of faith. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was 
was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds, freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. And now let's get back to the show. A major leap of faith. And oh my gosh, there's so much that I want to unpack there. So I know a big part of, I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, of you really partnering up with John Frieda is you being able to create this product that you had in mind, the Frizzies. Is is that true? Because I'm sure you were thinking about like, how do I create the most wealth and I'll only do the leap. So I'd love to hear kind of how you thought about really joining him and what made you feel comfortable. Right. Well, there was kind of two things. One, I had been thinking of selfishly about my hair because it's really been a problem for me. It's very frizzy and I have a lot of hair. And so it took a long time. There were no products at the time at all for frizzy hair. Every product on the market was for fine limp hair. Every product added body. So none of them were good for me. And I thought this is crazy because more people have this hair type either through genetics or through perming at the time or color. And I said, it's crazy. There's nothing out there. So I started researching ingredients. And when John asked me to help him with his products that he had in the UK, I said, fine, but I have this idea for a product for my hair type. And I've got some ideas for ingredients. Do you have a chemist that you work with there? And I said, I have a chemist here in the US. Maybe we could kind of get together. 
would you be okay with that if I started to develop? And he said, fine. And so that's basically how Frizzies was born. But the other thing that pushed me was that my father was more of an inventor. He was in computers when it was just early days, when mainframes were rooms full of computers. And he developed a program that took companies, publishing companies, an hour to change addresses and everything, and it used to take them months. So he had opportunities to start his own business. People would come to him, and he never did it because he felt the security of where he was. He was a VP. He knew the person. Yet in time, they sold that company. And where was he then? I mean, he still did well, but still. And I thought, you know what? I don't want that to happen to me. I can take a chance now. I can always get a job. I can always get a job. Here's an opportunity. I don't want to regret it. You know, because you always, you don't regret the things you try really, but if you don't try it, you do, you know? So I thought, that's it. I'm going to do it. My father thought I was crazy. He said, you're making a good salary, whatever. I said, I've got to do this. So we packed up Anne and me and the kids and the nanny and went to England and started it there. Incredible. And you, I mean, you grew up with a dad who was an inventor, so I think that's great exposure. But did you ever think that you would be an entrepreneur or you would be in an opportunity like this? Or you just saw the potential? Never, Never, ever, ever did it enter my mind. And nor would it have entered any of my friends' minds. Because like I said, I was more, oh, let me sing with the band tonight, even though I wasn't like a really good singer. (laughs) You know, oh, let me learn the guitar. You know, I loved music, but I also was very serious when I had a job. I like to problem solve always, and I like to read a lot, but it didn't all come together until I had the kids. You know, I was doing well at my job, and then I went to law school because I was thinking people aren't taking me seriously at the, even though I was progressing, I was also, you know, wearing crazy clothes and, you know, I wasn't doing myself any favors, like really trendy, crazy things. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go to law school because I love to read. I love law cases. I like that. My father went to law school. His sister went. I said, I'm going to go to law school because I really find it interesting. And then nobody can deny, not that they were, they were promoting me. But anyway, so I went for three years at night. I had another year to go, but I was starting to miss a lot of classes and you weren't allowed to miss more than five. So I had to make a decision at that point. I thought, oh, I can always go back, but I never did because- I wound up doing what I've done. So, oh my God, I did not know that part of your story that you were going to law school on the side. I mean, it just shows. And what I preach about you too is, you know, you had kids later in your life. You had so many different kinds of careers. Your career started a little bit, quote unquote, later, which is still young in the grand scheme of things. But I think that's important because there's so many women in their 20s and 30s who are kicking themselves, trying to create massive businesses and figure out life. But like you, it seems like everything kind of worked its way together in a matter of time. And who would have imagined you would have built, you know, never, never. I mean, never, ever in a million years. Seriously. It's just, I do really, really believe in though putting in the work wherever you are, because it leads you to what you're good at and what you, and what you're good at, you usually like, you know? So if you put the work in wherever you go, I do think it makes a huge difference. 
Yes, I, I agree with that. And, you know, also talking about the fact that, which I think is amazing, that you and your business partner, Anne, moved with your kids with a nanny and left your husband's back because I'm sure they couldn't just get up and leave because of their job. But that is such a, like, talk about leap of faith that, like, no one was doing that. Maybe now you hear things like that. But how was that experience? I mean, it's, were your husband supportive? Like, what did people think at the time of you guys just getting up and leaving? I know. I think they really thought we lost it. I do. <laughs> because we both had very good jobs and this was so uncertain but you know i felt what is the worst case scenario here we didn't want to stay where we were i said what's the worst case scenario if it doesn't work then we can always get jobs wherever you know we had a decent skill set so what's the worst thing we'll go back we'll get another job and it shouldn't be that far off of what we're making now, we felt. And if we're not going to do it now, we never will. And we felt we had a very strong experience and background in hair care, you know, very strong. And in financials, we were always in the, I was anyway, always in the financial meetings. And Anne was such a good counterpart to me because I, she is so strong administratively. And I think mm. it's so important that you know what you're good at and have a partner that kind of fills in the gaps where you're weak. And I thought, you know, this is like the perfect duo. And John was so good at what he did and so promotable and smart. And then I thought, you know what, this should work. And we're just going to have to make it work. And so we did it. We went. And I love that because I think there's two things that really stand out is, you know, you being a little bit later in your career, you had the confidence, right? Everything that you said, you're strong in the financials, you've been in the industry and also your team, right? You had the right partner, Anne, who had a different skill set and John yes. Frieda. Like, I think that is magic. And we'll talk about even how you continue to do that in your business today. But that team is so important, like who you so surround critical. yourself with, right? It is really so critical. I think, I mean, when you think of all of the huge companies, there's, you know, Jobs and Woz Wozniak. There's Bill Gates, and I always forget his sidekick, Paul. I can't think of his name. But they always, there's always somebody that compliments you. And Anne was that person. She's everything that I'm not. And John, too. You know, John was just great going on TV and doing PR and really helpful with, with so many different things. But he had a different kind of, we all have our own unique sort of skill sets that sort of blended together. Because I don't think, I mean, if unless you're very lucky, you don't have everything. So it's like key to find those players with you. Plus it's fun, you know? Yes, totally. And like you said, yeah. really understanding what your strengths are. And sometimes that takes switching to different jobs to figure out, oh, like what am I good at in different exactly. scenarios, right? Exactly. Yeah. So it's even good to switch careers. It is. You learn a lot on the way. Totally. And, you know, one thing you mentioned a few times in an interview is that, you know, you've always had a leadership style that led with kindness. And you mentioned earlier in your career, you know, people might not have taken you seriously, which is why you wanted to go to law school. So I'm curious, as a woman, now there's so many women entrepreneurs, but you were very early in this world. Yeah. You know, how did you deal with your leadership style still wanting to push for kindness and be taken seriously? Because I think actually that's something a lot of people struggle with. I mean, including myself, because I don't know anything else outside of kind, but there's a lot that we need to do to move things forward. So I'd love to kind of get your perspective around this. You know, I was always also very small. You know, I was 5'4", but I was slight. And so I think that that sort of worked against me, but I never really thought, you know, I think a lot about the 
people coming up now that are kind of girl bosses. I never thought being a woman was a detriment, really, even though I knew some people would try to take advantage. So I eventually kind of, but I never thought they really could. So I remember after a while they would try and then you'd always say, you know, what are you trying to get away with here? No, it is not going to go down the way you want it to. You just have to be strong. And then I wound up, I don't know if this is a good strategy or not. It worked for me, but it sounds crazy. But I started to, you know, when I started to work with somebody and I wasn't sure about how they were like an outside supplier, I would say, I want to make something very clear from the beginning. I like to be friendly. I like the relationships to be helpful both ways. I like to have fun. I like to be a good person. I said, but just make no mistake about it. I said, I've been, you know, people try to take advantage of different people and I don't let that happen. And I've been called deceptively sweet. I said, and I'm not deceptively sweet. I like to be nice, but it's only, it's only deceptive if you try to, you know, play me in some way. Then I'm just going to call out, call you out for what you are. And so I just feel like if you're just straightforward all the time, you can be nice. But if they t- try to take advantage of your nice, trying to do business in a very fair and open and nice way, and they try to take advantage, well, then you just stop it. Boom, right there. And you can, you know, you absolutely can. So I never found really being a woman. I think you just have to believe in what you're doing and also not let anybody run over you. You can do it in a nice way. I tried to set it up in the beginning so I didn't have to go through it. And it did work for me for a while, but it was maybe a little bit trickier then. But I honestly, and I just was watching this Evie Pompanos. I'm not sure she's a, do you know who she is? She's a, she was a secret service. She's a tiny little thing. She was secret service to Obama. Bush, I think, a few people. And she always says, too, she didn't even realize that she was a female in a way. She was Mm. just doing her job. And in a way, I didn't even realize. I think I'm in my head a lot. And it's like, what is the, what am I trying to do here? What is the objective? And I stick there. Do you know? So I don't know that I felt such a problem being a female, but there's definitely, I mean, there was harassment, no question. Do you know what I mean? And it's better now than it was when I was young. So they've made a lot of progress in things that I think I just sort of dealt with. And I probably should have thought about it more, but I just dealt with it on my own kind of thing. But yeah, times have changed a lot. Times have totally changed. Yeah, no one was, was speaking about it. And you kind of thought it was normal. I mean, even looking at my career in banking, you know, I've never had anything really bad, but there are certain situations. And I look back, I'm like, I should have said something. And I'm like, what was I thinking? But <laughs> it wasn't, you know, you're doing the best you can at the time. And I thought it was normal, which now I definitely don't. So I'm glad we're having more conversations around this and more women are speaking. Because it depends on how you're brought up too. I mean, I was more in a, in a vocal family. We all got along, but we would a bunch of lawyers would argue at the table. So I think that I was lucky and then I wasn't afraid to say, what are you doing to a guy? Do you know what I mean? Exactly. Are you, are you kidding? I wasn't really. And also I didn't have kids at the time and I wasn't afraid for my job, which is the sad part. So many women yeah. that I saw too were afraid because they had kids, they were divorced and mm. 
they were afraid to speak up. So it's good that things have changed for sure because not everybody has the luxury of only having to deal with themselves. And so they're free to say whatever they want, which yes. I was at the time. Exactly. And I love how you kind of had this conversation in before the vendor meetings, because I do think, you know, when you sometimes are nice, I mean, I've only been in situations in tough ones where people do take advantage of a nice person. It could be a man or or a woman, you know, it doesn't matter what your gender is, but I think it's really important to be firm. And that doesn't mean you need to be mean or defensive. It's like firm. So like working on that, whether you're in your job today, I think it's just a good skill set or with friends or family, like anytime someone puts you in an uncomfortable situation. Like I really love when women kind of stand up and are firm about it. I think that people really respect you. I think when you're just doing the right thing, you don't have to do it in a nasty way. You can just set it forth and there's nothing wrong with that at all to speak up when the truth is on your side, you know? And if you don't, I think it's so important not to take things personally in life. And I think that was a blessing somehow that I got. I don't, I've never really taken things personally. Not that I'm not, I am shy and I, you know, I'm vulnerable in a lot of ways, but I don't really take things. And I think that that helps in being not angry at somebody and and being able to handle it. Totally. I love that. I think that's a superpower. And also, I don't know if this is a hack, but it helps me. If there's someone who is nasty or saying something that isn't too nice, I'm just like, they're hurting. They're not in a good place themselves. And they're just reflecting it out on me, but that has nothing to do with me. You know, like you said, don't take it personally. No, exactly. It's their problem that they're dealing with it like that. And that is a superpower. It's like nothing that I work toward, you know, I wish I could say I worked hard at this, but it's just was sort of a gift that, I don't. And I think that helped me. And I think that people can learn to do it though. I agree. It's like a muscle you exercise. Yes. But I want to, I'm going to fast forward a little bit, but you eventually sold John Frieda for $400 million, which is incredible. But I have so many questions here because from my understanding, your intention was never to sell the company. I know you rejected the first offer. So tell me more about how this whole thing came about and eventually unfolded for you. Well, throughout the 10 years or 12 years with John and Anne, people would come to us and they would be interested in in buying the company. And we would entertain them, but not really wanting to sell more out of fear that if we didn't act like we were interested, that they would knock us off sooner. So, So rather let them think that they could buy us for a while. So that's kind of what we did just as a protection for a while. And it was the same in the year that we sold. We weren't really planning to sell, but we thought, okay, they're probably going to think of some way to knock off all the products. We'll talk to them. And one thing led to another. And I then said, you know what, honestly, because it went on and on. And I said, unless you were going to pay 500 million, that we're really not interested. And I thought that's a pretty safe bet. So they came in with 350. And I remember, and John and I, and I said, no, Um, we were talking. I said, absolutely not. We have too many things that, and John is laughing. John's going, Gail, $350 million. So I said, I know, I know, but we have so much more to do. I said, I don't think now is the right time. And so we all talked about it and agreed. And then I finally just called and said, you know, it's thank you very much. It's like an amazing offer, but 
we really can't accept it. You know, we feel like it's worth more than that, blah, blah, whatever. I don't know what I was talking about. And then they came back. I remember, and I was just with John and they said 450 and I hung up the phone. I remember feeling sick. And I said, John, I said, I think it's irresponsible for us not to sell. But I said, the thought of it, because we had built it and we all liked each other and we were all having a good time. And it was just a whole big group of us. My family was working together. Everybody was sort of family in the company. We were all building something. And I said, I, I, it tortures me, but I feel it would be irresponsible to our families to not take it. And we did, we went through it. I remember we were in the taxi on the way to, and our CFO almost had a heart attack. She said, and I said to John, do you want to flip a coin and let fate decide? I said, and she goes, you cannot get out of it now. We've done, <laughs> but we were miserable. Like really, like Anne and I particularly were really in a little bit of post-traumatic stress for about a year because it was our whole you know, we built this thing from scratch and we had so many friends in the business and it was a hard thing to let go of, really hard. Yeah. And I've heard that actually quite a lot. And some women who've been on the podcast even have opened up and said, like, I was actually depressed for like a year, you know, because it's, your, it's like a child. Yeah. A bit. Yeah. I wasn't myself for a year. That's for sure. And, you know, it's interesting because so many people want to hit that milestone, you know, like that is the ultimate success of entrepreneurship. Like you create something from scratch and you sell it, but it's just, it's interesting because it just makes me realize, of course, having wealth is so important. And I think like you like to support your family. That's a big motivation yeah. for me. But I think at a certain point, it doesn't necessarily bring happiness, but let me, how did, how did you feel about that as someone who has really hit incredible financial success? You know, like you said, it feels, I feel secure. You know, I feel secure and I feel more so for my daughters and particularly my daughter, Alex, that has the heart condition because she needs extra care and a lot of things. And so, you know, it gives me a real sense of peace and security. But, you know, when you work, I work to make money, but I also worked to not solely to make money. I mean, yes, in one way, but I also work to. It's like when you work to make a difference or you work to matter, you yeah. make money, mm -hmm. you know? And so you get really invested in what you're doing that matters to other people. And so I, we were really invested in that whole, you know, frizz and the blondes and the beach blondes that we were doing. We had so many back in the day letters, you know, and things, gifts that people were sending us be out of being grateful that we were solving their problems. Cause that's what I like to do. I love always to solve problems. I don't know if that comes from puzzles from when I was a kid, whatever, but I, I love to find solutions to frustrating problems. And, and you get so much in return from women, like so much we got back and that is fulfilling. The money is absolutely important for your security and safety, but it's very fulfilling to be making a difference. Even if it's, you know, it's not curing cancer, but you still are making people feel better and that makes you feel good, you know, and losing that was hard. You know, it was hard. 
I'm sure and everybody's here to want to make an impact in some capacity. So I'm sure just losing that aspect must have been really tough. And, you know, I know you also had a non-compete for a few years. So you kind of dabbled in different industries. Did you think you'd get back into the hair game right when your non-compete ended? Absolutely not. Okay. I I thought you were going to say absolutely. So tell me how Color Wow came about because that is, that's fascinating. Absolutely not. It was the last thing I ever wanted to do. I felt like we were there, we did it and absolutely no way. Yeah. And, but during that period, we were still keeping a nucleus of us together and my sisters were working with us and I have the most difficult hair. They have nice, you know, straighter hair, but they went gray early. I did not. That's the one saving grace, but they did. And I was looking and I'm thinking, why aren't you covering those roots that you have to my sister, Lynn? I said, who does our operations? I said, it's crazy. I said, I said, there must be something. I never paid attention to products for gray roots. And she said, there's nothing out there. There's sprays that go all over the place. There's crayons. They look like fake. She goes, there's absolutely nothing. And I thought, well, that's crazy that there's nothing when it's such a pervasive problem and it's so, it's frustrating and embarrassing. So I thought, hmm. And I started to think about a hairdresser that I worked with in the studio who put a blonde wig on a model and it looked fake. So he took some eyeshadow, put it at the roots to make it look more realistic. And when we hit it with the fans, the eyeshadow was blowing everywhere. But I thought, you know, I wonder if we could make something that was reflective because there was nothing that was reflective and looked like hair. That was a powder that could stick to the hair without making it wet or sticky. So it took us three years and I was just doing it as a problem solver, really, not for any other reason, you know, just, oh, let's see, not thinking we'd be back in hair care. And we finally came up and we were tweaking the formula and it was interesting. And we got this formula that was amazing how it matched the hair perfectly. You could not, and it was so easy to apply. You just dabbed it on and you didn't know it wasn't hair and it felt like hair. And then I thought, oh my God, this is really good. My sister was going to Florida, one of them. I put it on her hair. She, I said, you've got to put this on. You can't go there like that. So she went, she called me and she said, you are not going to believe this, but you can swim in it. Oh and I God. thought, oh my God, you're kidding me. Because I never even thought further than, and I said, well, this is such an important product for women that it looks so perfect. It covers so easily. There's no mess and you can swim in this. It's like a godsend. Yes. So I said, all right, let's look at hair color right now and see if, because hair color had become more important than haircuts. You know, there was a period of time where haircut was defining everybody like the Rachel and whatever and Farrah Fawcett back in the day, but it became color. Everything was about color and changing your color so quickly. And I said, let's look to see if we can address other issues for what's going on in hair right now. And one thing led to another, and we wound up developing more products that we felt could make a huge difference and problem solving straight through and launched the line because I said, we cannot not deliver this product. It's like too important for women, but I did not want to go back. I can tell you right now, it was not my intention at all. It was just, I don't know, fate. 
Yeah. And were you, I'm curious, and we'll go into Color Wow in a little bit, but were you working on other kind of inventions at the time when you were in your non-compete? And this one just happened to be the one that sticked and did well? We did a small line of products for a friend who is actually John's ex-wife, Lulu, who has a big singing career in the UK, had had her own TV show, has a lot of hits through all the decades and whatever. And she had to always look young. So she had through the years been asking our chemist, Joe, and our group to help her with some skincare products, which we did. She came out with albums and all they did was ask her, how does she look so good for her age? So we had that little group, but we weren't thinking about it that much. We were in music, a completely different thing. And she went on QVC and started selling them and they were selling out as we were making the root cover-up. But what happened was it is still in the UK. We couldn't bring it here because the color route just blew mm-hmm. up and the US is so big and it just yeah. blew up so much that our attention went really over to the hair care. Yeah. And and I know you, so you guys created all these products and um, I know, you know, did you see that momentum very early on or was it really when you partnered with the celebrity stylist, Chris Appleton, where things really went through the roof? I'd love to hear just kind of before and how you thought he would be the right fit for the next level of your company. That's a really good question. We were looking at different, I always wanted to work with a hairstylist. Because I was used to it and I like to bounce off and I wanted somebody that had the same aesthetic because you can have good hairdressers, but you're not seeing eye to eye. And I just wanted to work with somebody. So I'd been looking at books and people would bring me online portfolios and I'd be looking and I really couldn't find anybody that I thought was right. In the meantime, we were just creating our own content and doing what we could. And it was really before our website was as big and as, you know there was no TikTok at the time. But what happened that was our first very, very big break was when Hoda went on with our dream coat and really on her favorite things, but she, it, it was like an infomercial on the product wow. and on a Thursday or a Friday. And honestly, our web went down And the amount of sales. And then the next Monday, she talked about it again and said she went through the weekend using this product. And it was her hair has never looked like this in Florida. It's and she went on and on. And throughout the years, she just so she has been like an absolute huge supporter. And then we have a team of educators that have been going out in the field and training hair salons. But we spent in about five years ago, we made it a real priority to build the website and have a lot of education and really concentrate on that side of the business. And that helped. And then when I met Chris, we, he hadn't done anybody at that time, except for Rita Ora. I remember, and I never heard of him. And I, but I looked at his portfolio and I'm thinking, this is so cool. It's, it's so well executed. Even the stuff that was more rock and roll, it was to with a purpose and it was so, everything was so well executed. And I said, who is this guy? I said, let's talk to him. And so we had a, what did we do? A Skype or something. And he was funny. He was funny and, smart, you know, and 
said things about, I felt like been there, done that, got the t-shirt on hair. I've been to, you know, wrote a haircutting book with somebody, wrote a styling book with John, you know, am I going to learn anything new after it's hair? But he was really insightful on a lot of things. And I thought I liked him and we had the same thoughts about things. So I just asked him, would you consider doing six months and we can see how we get along and if it works. And so he agreed and the six months were great. You know, we were on the same page. We do a shoot. We were seeing the same thing and he was giving good input on the products. And then one thing led to another and we signed him up and it's like, it's like a great match. Like I said, with John Frieda, it was a perfect match and he was really important to everything. Chris, our chemist, it's how we all work together. I think Dr. Joe is, he's been working with us since John Frieda. Actually, he worked with me at Zotos. So it's so many years I've been working with him. And it really is, it's like a family of people that really respect each other's abilities. Everybody is so good in their lane, you know, just so good. And it's fun. You know, it's really fun. Everybody develops and builds their business differently. I love doing it with the team. I like doing it with a creative person like John or like Chris. It helps me for, you know, what I like to do and how I like to do things. So, yeah, I think it's been a great marriage of everybody, like amazing. Yes. And I love that you, and I think this is, I'm just pointing this out because I think it's just good for any woman who's listening who might be looking to partner with someone always doing a test run like you did of six months. It's like sometimes people are like, okay, how do I structure the deal? And I'm like, well, have you even worked together? Do you like each other? It's like a marriage, right? So I love that you. It is. It's very, very important because you don't want to get stuck with anybody and you want to be open and talk because, you know, Chris could have not been happy with us. And then you're tied into somebody and it's a frustrating, you don't want to work like that. Especially after I sold the company, the one I, I never want to, you know, if I'm going to work, I want to be happy working. I was happy the first time. I certainly want to be happy the second time. And I want to work with people I like. And that is so important when you're building your own business, you know, you're putting in an insane number of hours in insane. So you don't want them to be toxic and torturous. That's for sure. Right. Totally. I know. Yes. It's already as hard as it is. And like just having the right people, like you said, I mean, it just energizes you. It makes it fun. And like building a business is tough, but it's like, you can make it fun with the right people. You can. Yeah. You can. And no one is blaming each other when things don't go right. We're all in the war room together. And sometimes we laugh. Because even though it's not a laughing matter, sometimes you just have to laugh because it's unbelievably bad. Yes. So, you know? yes. Totally. And, you know, I want to hit up to talk about the first influencer, Huda, Huda, right? Am I saying her name correctly? Um, it actually wasn't Huda. It was Hoda uh, from the Today Show. Oh, Hoda. Got it. Got it. Okay. Amazing. So were you at that time, you know, before Chris came about, were you guys shipping samples out to different like stylists or influencers or was she, okay. So she was one of the ones and you, she just happened to have had a great- It was her, we didn't even send them. It was her hairdresser that had got her hands on the product. We didn't even know anything about it. Wow. And her hairdresser called us and said, I see that you're out of stock. Amazing. Which we were for a, a small period of time. He goes, can you let me know when you're back in stock? We had some very great articles come out too that wiped us out. 
But we got back in stock and called her and she said, oh, wait for this. It's going to be big. And we thought, well, we <laughs> hope it is, but you know, we don't know if it really is. And because sometimes your hopes are there and it's just a yeah. slight mention. So we were all waiting, but not high hopes really. And it was just beyond, wow. beyond what we ever expected. It was amazing. That's awesome. You know, a lot of people ask me this question because there's two things that I'm kind of thinking about. You know, sometimes people start a business and they're just wishing that moment's going to come. But I think it's hard to bet on that. Like you wish that one celebrity is going to use, like you can't think that way, right? Because you never know when something's going to pop, right? Like you said. And you I think- You never know. You never like know. Like Spanx, Sarah Blakely, right? Sarah Blakely with Spanx, her Oprah moment changed oh, her yes. world. Oh my gosh. So it's great when it comes, but you certainly can't bank on it. Exactly. And I think it's still like you showing up consistently, working hard to get the product out. But I think the main aspect is really creating a product that makes a difference, right? Which is what you've done. thousand percent. I think that it just, you don't have as an entrepreneur, most people don't have the money to spend, to promote it the way a big company can. You just don't. So if you really find you know, uh, an issue that someone has, and you can actually help them with that. Mm-hmm. Problem solution is so powerful. And that's how we start. And it's also the most rewarding to me. And that's how we started with Frizz. And that's how we've continued now. I mean, with the dream coat, it's, it really waterproofs your hair. And mm-hmm. right now, I mean, it's all over TikTok because actually Chris did something and then everybody else, they're pouring water and they're seeing the drops form like on umbrella material. And it's, you know, it's gone absolutely crazy. So, but that's also hard to have happen. Yes, exactly. So, and, and I'm, let's talk about this because clear, I can see the product doing really well on TikTok, but were you guys just always making content and one of them just happened to hit? Tell me more about just going viral life before and after. Yes. So a lot of our products, because they're addressing a problem, you can see the results quickly. Yeah. So they're like perfect to demonstrate. So we have always been making content and also we get lots of UGC. A lot of, you know, we send out a lot of product. People just, I mean, somebody just found one of our products, Dream Filter. We didn't send it to her. She made this most brilliant, I'm not sure if it was a TikTok or Insta. I think it was TikTok. It was unbelievable. It was just very raw just talking, you know, to the, but so real. Mm. And we sold so much of the dream filter and we're going, what, what is happening? And it was this person who just got on there, spoke about the difference that it makes. And so when you really can demonstrate for real Mm -hmm. that it's taking minerals out of your hair and your hair is brighter and you actually see it, or it's, you know, going to waterproof you, your hair and somebody goes into a sauna and comes out and their hair still isn't frizzed up. It's yeah. perfect. You know, when you're answering a problem and you can show, hey, this works, it makes it so much, it's besides being rewarding, it yeah. makes it easier to sell. It's easier to sell when you can demonstrate. Same early days with frizzies. It was easy to demonstrate how that product worked in a on TV. Yeah, so, yeah. No, that's that's great. And just talking about my business, if this inspires anybody, I wish I had a product like yours. Mine takes it's a 
basically a superfood that supports hormones. So it takes like one to three months to really feel an impact. Not like yours where you can see the before and after, which would be amazing. But to your point, we had a doctor by herself kind of do this seven minute video about us on her own accord. I had no idea. And we've never gotten so many sales before. I was like, is the website broken? Like, where is this coming from? So it just goes back to like creating a good product that makes a difference that and totally. people want to share and talk about it. Eventually you will yeah. get that kind of testimonial that makes the biggest difference like with a doctor you can't get better than that with a product like that you know yeah and when you've made a good product like you have people will come and they'll understand and they will speak for you I mean obviously you have to do your own promotion always but but no it's right and you know just like you said a lot of people think they need money behind it and you have to do all these things we're bootstrap it is true like you hear stories of like word of mouth and people sharing it does happen with a good product so I just want to inspire other women who might be thinking about ideas because you've seen it right in in your businesses as well 100% I mean we didn't have any money when we started John Frieda and actually even with this we don't act like a big company we don't it's a lot of giving samples away when you believe in your product the more you give away, the more influencers that you talk to. And they don't have to be big. They're micro-influencers, a lot of them. As long as the content, particularly on TikTok, now is the time I tell anybody, everybody that is listening to this, if you have a product, make sure you are on TikTok and make two, three TikToks a day if you can. And also now Reels, Mm. If this is coming out soon, I don't know when it is. Real yeah, soon. The algorithm, forget it. You're going to have so many followers now if you just keep posting videos, video after video after video. Some of the people that we work with, they were at 20,000 and three weeks ago, and they're at 120,000 now because they're favoring it. So you've got to really keep on what are the trends? What's happening? How are the algorithms changing? It's a lot of homework. It is a lot of work, particularly now. It's much harder now than it was in the John Frieda days, much harder because there's so much more to master than back then, you know, so much more content. You have to create it every day, but it's doable. It's doable. You just have to learn the little tricks along the way and you're more nimble than the big companies. So you can make it, you know, you really can. You just have to be really open and trying to learn all the time, the little tricks and what's happening and what is working for other people. You know, not necessarily the big players because they play differently. Mm-hmm. And I would never even watch them that much, to be honest with you, because they've got so much money. They don't have to be as strategic. So it's really learn from the people that have built it themselves and pick up the tips and tricks. Like I read a lot. So I loved Phil Knight's Shoe Dogs, mm. and Tony Shea's Delivering Happiness from Zappos. Because I don't want to reinvent the wheel. So I try to read about other, and of course, Steve Jobs, entrepreneurs that have to fight their way up against the, you know, big players. For sure. And I think we'll we'll probably have this podcast coming out very soon. But yes, TikTok right now in the next like six to 12 months, it's like you got everybody beyond there. Like you said, three to four pieces of content. We're doing that now. It's not easy, but it does get better. And I think what's beautiful about creating content, again, you don't know what goes viral, but it's like you figure out your messaging and what resonates with people, right? It's like, just put it out there. It's like, it's only going to benefit you because you see what do people like? Like, should you change your marketing? Should you change your language? Yes, and you're learning every time if it's not catching on, you tweak it and you tweak it and you send it to other people and they create content. And a lot of times they think of an angle that you might not think of. Or when you read reviews, 
Sometimes people use the product or think about the product in a different way that gives you an idea for copy that you might write. Like I always like to look at the reviews because you're always picking up something from a consumer. Totally. I love that. No, this is such, such great advice. And, you know, I want to close on one question. You see, you know, I'm sure you mentor, advise so many entrepreneurs over the past many years, but what do you think are some of the biggest mistakes in general that founders might be making? I think a lot of times people don't kick the tires enough. They really believe in their idea and they want to believe in it so much that they don't really see the weak points of something. I find that a lot because you really have to look at it in the most critical way possible so you can correct it. Like Bill Gates said, bad news must travel fast. I agree with that too. I tell everybody, tell me the bad news. Yeah, I don't even care about the good news. I like to hear it, but you don't need me for good news. If it's going good, you don't need me. But if something isn't good, tell me and let me help think of a way out of this or a way to fix it. And so I feel to me, that's one of the biggest problems is that you don't, you're not truthful to yourself about how good is this? Will consumers, like you might love the idea, but if you ask people, not your friends, yeah, because your friends will always support you. Ask your friends, tell me the worst things about this. Why wouldn't you buy this? I mean, we did something back in the day with, I'll tell you real quick, with Sheer Blonde. We thought it was so smart and we had Sheer Blonde and we put it in a CVS on the shelves in our section and we asked consumers, would you, we only asked blondes, what would you buy on the shelf? They never picked our product, never. And we were thinking it was genius. Never, I would go, why didn't you pick this Sheer Blonde? They said, oh, well, we couldn't even read it because all the letters were like block letters. And instead of kind of fighting, it was, all right, let's change the design. Don't be married to it. Yeah, Fix it. Even if we thought the design was genius and we thought our copy was genius, <laughs> we really <laughs> thought it was so smart. But we learned by putting it up with people that had no attachment to us, why they wouldn't buy it or why they didn't gravitate toward it on the shelf. And that made the huge, because we were ready to start making the product when we did that with the designs, we did everything. And thank God that we went into the store wow. and, and questioned people and look, and we changed the packaging and we changed the wording so that it was more clear. And then every blonde that we brought down the aisle picked, we said we were from a marketing company. They <laughs> went to that. that, they went to that brand and the sheer blonde and picked it out. But the first few times they didn't. And so we were like, what do you mean? This is good. But you have to search for the truth. So that you, you know, you absolutely cover every single angle that you can and then go out full force. I think to me, that's, I think people kind of delude themselves a little too much and don't really look for the holes. I think you have to. Yeah, I think that's really important. And whether it's like launching a beta of people using it, like before going full fledged and putting your money behind it. And like you yes. said, being flexible about, oh, we might have, I mean, I'm curious for you, did you ever do any beta products and you had to change a formula or something didn't work? I mean, was that a constant thing you guys were doing? No, we really tested every product before to a fault, you know, because we're not public. And so even if we had it scheduled to launch in April, 
we could push it to the next April if we didn't have it where we thought, because I feel like when you don't have a lot of money to brainwash through ads, ads, and whatever, you have to make sure that you've got it right. Mm -hmm. You know, to the best of your ability, you have to make sure you are delivering what you say you are delivering. Your communication is really clear. And if you're on the shelf, then you've got to stand out on the shelf with clear messaging because that's that was our only advertising. We didn't have money to advertise in the beginning in print magazines or whatever. And now for us, it's like really, really studying the digital world because at every point, you know, way back radio was the communication and you had to master it. Then it was TV and print. You had to master it in order to, to succeed. And now you have to master digital you have to master best practices for your websites, best practices on TikTok and on just everything, on SEO, on Google, on how many you know headlines you have to write, everything. It's like a study. You really have to study and then you can beat those bigger players. You can beat them without spending the same money, without a question, without a question. I totally agree with that. And, you know, just talking our product we launched, you know, the website wasn't amazing. It was good enough to like prove the concept. We didn't do a big launch. We're like, let's see if it resonates. Let's learn from our consumers. When people buy your product, I think it's also different. Like they'll give you real feedback versus if you give it to someone for free. I don't know. That's kind of what I've seen. But just to your point. Yeah, like sometimes even launching, whether it's TikTok, just getting started or doing like a preliminary website that might not be beautiful, but just to learn and then take it, like you said, to the next level of like, okay, how do we continue to do better and take us to the next level from all the learnings? Because I think sometimes people don't even start and it's like, you're not going to (laughs) learn. Yeah, you know, that's exactly it because our website, I mean, we just redid it again. Okay, so we're constantly learning. So we went to Shopify now, but it's a process. You can't not do it because you don't think it's good enough. You have to think it's the best you can do at the moment, but be ready to learn and be ready to keep giving it upgrades. I mean, you you should never stop learning anyway. You should never, I mean, that would be boring. You know what I mean? So you probably can always improve and you do learn from your mistakes. So if you don't start making mistakes, then you never get anywhere. You know, you've got to just go for it and not worry after you've kicked the tires so i keep telling everybody kick the tires guys don't fall in love with it too much yes yes i love it gail well this was such an inspiring interview i'm so glad you were on i appreciate you taking the time gail we'll have to have you come on for a part two i could talk to you forever (laughs) i could talk to you ask me brilliant questions i love them i love them i'm sure you're gonna do amazing they're very smart really smart questions Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.